Yeah, we're sort of looking out here. We're up on a hill, and we see the Statue of Liberty. We see Ikea. We see the Brooklyn <laughs> Queens Expressway. And we, we have this lore about the cemetery where they say that the founders of the cemetery, um, Henry Pierpont and the, its designer, David Bates Douglas, came here and thought that it was close enough from a day trip from Manhattan, but far enough away that it would never get developed. And we <laughs> see that the Con Edison plant on one side and the Jackie Gleason bus terminal and all this urban sprawl in front of us now, it is developed, but the landscape is maintained. And because it's a landscape that's maintained in perpetuity uh, as our sort of responsibility to our lot owners, it also gives us the opportunity to sort of say, what are the best practices to make sure the landscape is around in the future? What do we need to change and how do we need to adapt what we're doing in order to make and preserve the landscape moving forward? Welcome to Wild Talk. Welcome to Wild Talk. Welcome to Wild Talk. Let's head outside. Greenwood Cemetery is an oddly wild place. It's in the middle of Brooklyn, kind of near Sunset Park, south of Prospect Park. 478 acres that feels unexpectedly wild. Big old trees, bees, fungus, birds, flowers. But of course it's also full of dead people. I've been going to Greenwood Cemetery for years now. I don't know anyone there. I mean, I didn't know anyone before they died, but I've gotten to know some of the dead people there. I'm I'm writing a book about a Civil War regiment from Brooklyn, and many of the soldiers and officers are buried there. And I've even gotten to do some Zoom lectures with the historian Jeff Richmond. But believe me when I tell you that Greenwood Cemetery and their permanent residence, as they call them, it's a who's who of the 19th century. You've got famous actresses and Civil War generals, industrialists, businessmen, early developers of Brooklyn. There's Boss Tweed, there's Samuel Morse, inventor of the Morse Code. In fact, Jay Erickson, the host of this podcast, and I once drank hard cider from Apple's groan on the grave of Samuel Morse. And that tells you a little bit about what Greenwood is today. It's not just a burial ground, it's a a breeding ground. It's a it's a place of birth and renewal and life and full of excitement. Rural cemeteries, we, we often discuss this as the sort of the first publicly accessible green spaces. They predate all the botanic gardens, all the public parks. Um, and they offered city dwellers an opportunity to experience nature within an urban environment. Um, fresh air and, you know, being around trees. My name is Joe Cherup, and I'm the director of horticulture. And you grew up in Manhattan, which is, a, I guess, a counterintuitive place for someone, a horticulturalist, maybe, yeah. one, one might think. I grew up with a healthy fear of trees, um, <laughs> I think. And I graduated from college, and I got a master's in literature at Brooklyn College. And I was doing a postback to go to medical school, and I began working at a a research lab that specialized in researching in uh, paternal age-related schizophrenia. So the schizophrenia from the age of the father at the time of conception. While I was doing that, which was pretty emotionally taxing work, I would help a friend who had a gardening business do plant installs. Um, that led to me building the site, which I got married to my wife in Connecticut. And from there, I just had the bug. 
um, wanted to learn a lot about plants, and then met a woman who was the vice president of Glasshouses and Conservatory at the New York Botanical Garden at a dinner. I just happened to sit next to her, and I asked her where she'd trained. She referred me to the School of Professional Horticulture at the New York Botanical Garden, which she had attended. And so uh, a month later, I applied, and um, this has been my track ever since. Amazing. Yeah. And do you still live in Manhattan? We actually live here in the cemetery, my, my family and I. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. Yeah. Wait. There's a house over on Fort Hamilton Parkway, the Gothic structure that I live in. Are you kidding? No. Is that that comes that comes with the job? It, it comes. No, I, I just it was um, offered to me and my family a few years ago, and it was renovated, and we moved in. That is insane. Yeah, we feel very fortunate. Um, so I live there with my wife and two children. You live in a cemetery. Your kids are growing up in a cemetery. This is going to be a children's book, obviously. My son is three and a half, and my daughter is eight months. So they're really growing up in a cemetery. Yeah, with a healthy sense of mortality from a very early age. Does that does that hover over your work life? I mean, do you think about death regularly now, or is it all just sort of backdrop? I mean, I don't think about death any more than I used to think about it. I think what it, what working in a cemetery has really hit home is that death is inescapable from life and that you know we plant trees and we plant living organisms in the ground they grow some of them die and people live and die and it's a part of life it's just made it more matter of fact when you're out in the field doing field work there there are like over I think like 400,000 monuments on this ground. So you're constantly coming upon like little treasures, like a headstone that you've never seen. You're coming across a name or like there will be something inscribed on the epitaph. And, you know, this job is really cool in that we are able to like preserve memories of, or, you know, just like the names of people who otherwise might've been forgotten. Hi, my name is Sarah Evans, and I'm the manager of horticulture operations and projects at Greenwood. Uh, So I was born and raised in Maryland, and then I moved up here when I transferred from American University down in Washington, D.C., and completed my undergrad at Brooklyn College. Um, My major is urban sustainability, uh, concentrations in environmental science and sociology. Part of my job is to oversee a lot of the research initiatives and support them. And upcoming, I will be supervising and Greenwood will be hosting research into feral cats of New York City. This will be done by a student from Columbia University. And essentially it's gonna be a tracking, it's gonna be tracking research where they're gonna look at sort of just like uh, contract tracing of where these cats are going, so where they're going, sort of what resources they pool around. We're also going to be collaring other wildlife, so like some of our groundhogs, our skunks, our raccoons that are here to also see when they are interacting with one another. You know, the feral cats in New York City are just booming. That's it, and and so they come through the cemetery, or that's just a, you're supporting them... So no, because there, of your other no, there's a colony of cats that lives just behind our service yard. So those are the cats oh. that are primarily going to be 
trapped, neutered, released, or rather returned, and studied. Okay, like DNA? Where they go. They, there will be samples taken, yeah, so blood, yeah. stool, urine, saliva, any parasites will be removed from them. They're going to be vaccinated, yeah. There's another pretty notable feral population at Greenwood. They're kind of hard to miss. When you come in the main entrance of Greenwood Cemetery, there are these big Gothic, Gothic Revival arches designed by Richard Upjohn. And they were built in 1861 of brownstone. They've got biblical scenes tucked throughout the arches. And tucked throughout the biblical scenes and the Gothic details up high are nests of monk parrots. According to local birder Steve Baldwin, they came from Argentina in the 1950s. It was sort of a craze back then to bring parrots as pets, and they got loose from a ship or from people's homes, and it became a real problem in New York City. And the city actually sent out death squads, apparently, to kill all the feral parrots in the city, and this group escaped and took up residence at Greenwood Cemetery. And you can hear them squawking constantly, almost year-round. They're loud, and it's exotic and haunting. They're an invasive species, of course. But aren't we all? So these, you know, sort of modest-looking trees are... um, They haven't leafed out yet. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> They're semi-evergreen. Yeah, so these are um, southern live oaks. Wow. So they were collected as part of a seed collecting trip by um, Arnold Arboretum and Morris Arboretum, Michael Dozman and Anthony Aiello, and this is from the northernmost seed population uh, near the University of Richmond's cafeteria. Um, this tree was growing there, and they took seeds from it, and the U.S. Arboretum propagated them and then gave us... One, two, three, four, six. Six of them. Um, And we planted them when they were about this big, and we didn't think they were going to make it through the winter. And this is their fourth year now. Is that like a quarter around or a nickel around? What do you got there? Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's about... They were like this tall. So like three feet tall. They were saplings, if you will. Yeah. 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 And now they're over eight feet tall. So trees that were considered marginally hardy in this zone now are thriving here um, and suggests not only something about assisted species migration but also about you know the appropriateness of certain trees the utility of southern species in New York or in northern climates which are getting warmer so are these the trees that are going to be the oaks that we have around the city in the future who knows but it's you know it, A landscape such as this, with this much size, gives us the opportunity to experiment and try these different things that we've been trying because we have this resource and we feel like doing stuff like this is part of our responsibility. So do you suspect that the trees would not have survived 20 years ago? No. According to, like, the USGS hardiness zones, yeah. Yeah, I don't think so. And we use this planting um, with an with a interpretive panel here, which is part of an interpretive program that we called Alive at Greenwood, um, which um, also we have a mobile app that's in English and Spanish that talks about all of these things as well. But we created this obelisk here, which is, I think, you know, 10 feet tall, 
410 steel obelisk um, with a plaque in front that says planting for the future and it describes global warming and doesn't sort of shy away from calling it that um, and discussing climate change in a way that's not sort of confrontational but just matter again matter of fact similar to the way we approach death here so it's like this is a reality this is how we're responding to it and this is I mean the reason we are responding to it is because again of this landscape being a resource and sort of a responsibility too are there are there species that are not doing as well for the for the same reason sort of the flip side of this we're seeing a lot of um our pin oaks are really old um so they're they're suffering but we also think they require a colder winter than we're really having right now our european beach are long suffering from a fungal disease called phytophthora and the humidity of our summers which they don't really like anymore and you know that's that's a tree that's such a central part of this landscape that we're slowly losing and so what do we do well we think of the genus phagus which is um the beach genus and we say well we don't have that many american beach in fact we had one that was felled this summer that definitely predated the cemetery so we plant more american beach and we try to shore up that genus from being completely obliterated here by occasionally planting younger European beaches, realizing that we're going to have to inoculate them to protect them from this fungal disease. But maybe try to find a tree that can serve an aesthetic, the same aesthetic purpose that the beach did. Um, although, you know, they're a singular species in the way that they, you know, their design covers all, mm-hmm. everything below it, and their leaves were sort of made to absorb as much light as possible where they overlap. I feel like magnolia could replace beach to some degree. I don't think they have the same stature. Yeah, they don't have they like don't get an bulky. elephant form. Yeah, yeah, I see. Nothing can really replace beach, and maybe that's the point. But, you know, in a landscape like this, there's some degree of loss, so. We're always open, like, all year. Uh, to the public. I think, though, during quarantine, when people were asked to stay put and stay in their homes, you know, it anybody who otherwise would have had to take a car or a train to one of the larger parks, if they're living around here, we are, you know, the second biggest green space in Brooklyn next to Prospect Park. So, yeah. 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 I think opening our accessibility during covid was very much sort of a return to our understanding that this place can serve as many things to many different people at the same time. I mean, as we were dealing with the, you know, unprecedented increase in burials, we were also seeing unprecedented visitorship for people coming from non-burial related just leisure activity. So that there was the fact that we were serving where our, our business is burying the dead, but we also provide this as a green space for the community for people who want to who can safely socially distance in a place that doesn't promote um, active recreation but one passive recreation so sort of more thoughtful experiences and not to sound hokey but communing with nature in a space like this it's not um, a natural landscape this is very much a designed landscape with view corridors and you know planted tree alleys and vistas and so on so that 
it's conceived of in a way to allow nature to seem sort of more powerful and larger than you and you to sort of be humbled around it. But for that, it can also aid those who are grieving and it can also, you know, add a place of security in a time which was very <clears throat> uh, disruptive and confusing. Scary. Yeah, scary. scary. Yeah. I think that's like yeah. you look at this landscape and sort of there is a calming element to it being here. I don't think it's hokey to think of the cemetery as a place where you can think about life and death. I think that the whole point of it was conceived that way, to have these large living organisms um, be in a place in which um, the dead were buried. It's showing, I mean, like not in a subtle way, the continuity of life. I think our relationship with death and our relationship with cemeteries has changed, not necessarily for the better over the last... 150 years, but people used to come and picnic in a cemetery and people used to, like their relationship with death and their dead relatives, they were a lot more intimate with death, I feel like. You know, it's hard to know what the sources of that are, right? Like I feel like the visible relationship with death and how we're, you know, conceiving it, like people not visiting their lots as frequently or not picnicking, I, I don't know if that is like a direct cultural evolution specific to death or it's just the fact that people move away from their families people are spread all around you know what I mean and also just as a millennial myself like <laughs> uh, you know preparing for the end and your parents end is really expensive and so I think I mean I know myself and my my peers of my age and even younger a lot of what they're seeking are uh, you know, more ecological, less expensive alternatives like green burials, like composting, such and such. Last spring was so scary, but this spring I am noticing way more how like flowers trap light. <laughs> in a way where I just get I feel very emotional so yeah it's been really it's been really nice everything smells and looks really brilliant it's true yeah and there is something comforting about the fact that there's, there's a rebirth in spring that we can sort of yeah. recognize and celebrate now after going through something as dark as COVID was that's the whole like yin and yang of this place you know like you come here to visit a dead relative and you see a beautiful vista and you you know there's this terrible year that's full of burials and loneliness and yet in, in that quiet you kind of evolve or you start a new thing or you appreciate an old thing or yeah I think that captures the original intent for why the place existed in the first place so yeah Greenwood is built for those kind of experiences Thanks for listening to Wild Talk. This Wild Talk short was produced and edited by me, Matt Dellinger, with help from Jay Erickson and Emily Kagan Trencher. Special thanks for this episode to Harry Wild, the Director of Public Programming and Special Projects at Greenwood Cemetery, who helped arrange this. And of course, thanks to Joseph and Sarah. Visit our website, wildtalkpodcast.com, to see photos, related links, and more information about our guests. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to rate, review, and share with friends. Be well, and we'll see you out there.